What were the big stories of 2020? Was the COVID virus or the reaction to it what truly marked the year? Is the USA planning to go to war in 2021? How has journalism been impacted by the extraordinary events of 2020? What are the most censored stories of 2020? This week on the Global Research News Hour, we look back on the stories of the unique and unprecedented year of 2020 and predict where they take us going into 2021. In our first half hour, I get opinions from Patrick Henningsten of 20th Century Wire and from a Russian-American writer and geopolitical analyst, Dmitry Orlov. In our second half hour, we speak at length with Andy Lee Roth of Project Censored, looking at the most censored stories of 2020 and other features in the year's volume, Project Censored 2021, The State of the Free Press. On this week's program, 2020 Year in Review, COVID, Collapsing America, and the most censored stories of the year. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of January 8, 2021. The program is funded by the Centre for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaki, the homeland of the Métis and the traditional territory of the Nahiwak and the Nakota. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today, from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States, and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Hundreds of thousands of Yemenis chose to make the perilous journey to leave Yemen to seek safety and asylum in other countries such as Egypt, Djibouti, Somalia, Malaysia, Jordan, and Sudan. These families that were forced out of their beloved homeland by the Saudi-led war find themselves stranded in foreign countries with very little support. The United Nations High Commission for Refugees, or UNHCR, response to Yemeni refugees' suffering has been completely inadequate and insufficient. The same international community has been profiting since the start of the war on Yemen from selling weapons and military equipment to Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and their allied coalition. The U.S. and its Western imperialist allies are directly responsible for the war and destruction in Yemen. That comes from the article, Yemen, a Quagmire for Saudi Coalition and Imperialists, by Aza Rojbi, posted January 6th, originally published at Fire, this newspaper. Jamil Jaffer, executive director of the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University, told Amy Goodman on Democracy Now! that, quote, the point of the prosecution of Assange is to criminalize national security journalism, unquote. It goes to the heart of what journalists do, he said, quote, protecting confidential sources, communicating with them confidentially, cultivating sources, publishing classified secrets. 
These are the pillars of investigative journalism, of national security journalism in particular, unquote. Jaffer provided written testimony at Assange's hearing. He noted that in 1973, Harold Edgar and Benno Schmidt Jr. called the Espionage Act a, quote, loaded gun pointed at newspapers and reporters who publish foreign policy and defense secrets, unquote. That comes from the article, Assange Extradition Denial Indicts U.S. Prison System but Imperils Journalism, by Professor Marjorie Cohn, posted January 6, originally published at Truthout. If we are not careful, we may not look our children and grandchildren in the eyes because we knew, we ought to have known, what was and is going on, what is being done by a small, dark power elite, the globalists. We must step out of our comfort zone and confront the enemy with an awakened mind of consciousness and a heart filled with love, but also with fierce resistance. If we fail to step up, and stand up for our rights, this war goes on to prepare future generations to abstain from congregating with other people. They are already indoctrinating our kids into keeping away from friends, school colleagues, peers, and from playing in groups with each other as the new normal. The self-declared cupula, the creme of the crop of civilization, the globalist evil masters, already compromised and continue to do so the education systems throughout the globe to instill into kids and young adults that wearing masks is essential for survival and social distancing is the only way forward. That comes from the article We Are at War by Peter Koenig, posted January 6th. While the two companies had envisaged a separation clause following a process of restructuring, GSK and Pfizer have nonetheless integrated their decision-making specifically with regards to the vaccine market. Quote, With our future intention to separate, the transaction also presents a clear pathway forward for GSK to create a new global pharmaceuticals vaccines company with an R&D approach focused on science related to the immune system, use of genetics, and advanced technologies. Ultimately, our goal is to create two exceptional UK-based global companies with appropriate capital structures, GSK. What is at stake is the de facto formation of a big pharma worldwide monopoly with a global network of partners. That comes from the article, The GSK-Pfizer Multi-Billion Dollar Global Vaccine Monopoly, Big Money for Big Pharma, by Professor Michelle Chosodovsky, posted January 5th. In the end, only a grand coalition of all Covidian parties will become inevitable, either as a consequence of a rebellion or prior to one. The Greek government is trying to excel in its imposition of totalitarian rules for a non-existent COVID crisis, magnifying alleged PCR positives and blowing infections out of all proportion. They shut down Greece in early November by imposing draconian measures. The COVID coup of early March has metastasized 
into a full-blown COVID junta, as areas in western Athens have had a full 24-hour curfew imposed on them. Citizens have been quoted on MSM as stating this has nothing to do with a virus but a full-blown attempt at a junta. That comes from the article, Greece, from a COVID coup to a COVID junta, by Evans Agilisopoulos, posted January 6th, originally published at One World. Well, in most of these banana republics, the populace knows that their electoral system is a ruse, a scam. They know just how easy it is for the super-rich to run things through fixed elections. America operates on a much more sophisticated con. They make sure there are only two parties to choose from. The rest of any third-party movements are either co-opted or forced through the use of money in elections to become mostly invisible to the public. That comes from the article, The Fate of the American Republic Without the Banana, by Philip A. Ferrugio, posted January 6th. The racial, gender, sexual arithmetic has entailed ensuring a plastering and splash of shallowness, a squeezing of rhetoric that, on closer inspection, fractures with the cliches. In such cases, history suddenly has eyes and is looking at Biden. The eyes of history, he insists, are gazing at my diversity inclusion. This does not necessarily do him any favors. This is fashion show politics, not substantive thinking about how best to ameliorate a fatigued, broken state. That comes from the article, In Diversity We Trust, Joe Biden's Cabinet Choices, by Dr. Binoy Kapmark, posted January 6th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. The year 2020 has come and gone. 2021 has finally arrived. It's definitely been a year that changed a lot of patterns of life and thought. When I think of the major story of the year, no doubt it is the invisible germ that has wrought mayhem and havoc on most of our humanity. At no other time in history did all the governments of the world, under the direction of the World Health Organization, institute public actions to stem the course of the coronavirus, which, it is argued, originated from Wuhan, China, and slowly spread around the world. Lockdowns were instituted both in spring and then later in the fall. As Christmas approached, uh, for the first time ever, celebrations involving people outside the household, included family members, were discouraged. It is really not known when things will get back to normal. For me, the year marked the arrival of COVID and the arrival of the firm grip of power and control of the elites, largely driving affairs worldwide. 5G and the fourth industrial revolution have definitely not seen any alteration or slowdown of their sacred delivery to humanity. And the World Economic Forum's set of wishes 
under the mantle of the Great Reset is set for delivery in a few months. I wanted to get a number of other perspectives on what took place last year and, and where we're headed. Patrick Henningsen is a journalist, geopolitical analyst, and editor-founder of 20th Century Wire. I asked him his thoughts about the last year. Well, it's, it's been a long year. Uh, some people would say that um, the year 2020 is not something to, to have experienced, uh, but rather something to have endured. <laughs> it's been one of the longest years uh, people can can imagine. Yeah. When the year started, it was quite eventful. Uh, Michael, you know, just the first week of 2020, the United States launched uh, a drone attack, assassinated General Qasem Soleimani, and also uh, um, uh, General Mohandas as well uh, from the Hashd al-Shabi in Iraq. And, you know, a lot, uh, that effectively put, you know, the West on war footing uh, right at the beginning of the year. Uh, so that was going on. That was quite a tense uh, situation. And then uh, in Britain, we had the Brexit deadline, which was coming up uh, at the end of January. So that was kind of very much in the forefront of the conversation uh, in Europe uh, and in Britain. So we had these these really big, powerful uh, events to you know coming in right in the new year. And then obviously all of this began to become overtaken uh, by the uh, emergence of COVID-19 out of China, out of Wuhan. And it didn't take long, really a couple of months before that absolutely dominated just about everything uh, that was going on. And also right before COVID emerged was the Democratic primary in the United States. I mean, this was a, a massive field on the Democratic side. Bernie Sanders was more or less leading the pack uh, early on, and then we came into the Iowa primary, and we had sort of a election uh, technical problem where they couldn't count the votes in the Iowa caucuses, and and that was a big controversy at the time. Again, all of this got washed away, uh, really, with with COVID uh, as lockdowns uh, became instituted by uh, certain governments uh, in March. Uh, we're talking about mid to late March, and the United States, various states, went into this lockdown situation as well. Canada, uh, later Mexico, uh, much later on than some countries. Um, so that that really drowned out everything. So I mean, obviously, that's the, the biggest story. But what's interesting is, and, and also throwing the Julian Assange trial, that was delayed. Uh, the second part of that was delayed in May because of lockdown, because of COVID. So all of these other tertiary stories, the MH17 trial in the Netherlands, everything got delayed or it became more difficult for press uh, or activists to protest uh, because basically protesting went kind of out the window with lockdowns. So, you know, I'm really that, that you know, from a journalist, uh, the two things that I was doing, which was reporting on location and also uh you know, reporting from these uh, demonstrations as well at outside of the courthouses in London, whether it be for Julian Assange uh, or the trial in the Netherlands from MH17. So, you know, as a journalist and many other journalists like myself weren't allowed to go and do what we normally do. People weren't allowed, allowed to witness. Uh, the public wasn't allowed to show its face in support of various issues. Um, you know, so that's the freedom of assembly all of a sudden was no more. Parliamentary democracy was suspended in a number of countries for, for a time in Britain as well, and other countries too. And a kind of executive martial law type situation came into emergency 
uh, governments of emergency crisis legislation came into play. And again, that affected so many different things. So the, the press didn't have access to the things that it normally had access to. And so it, it affected all of those other stories. So yeah, we can talk about COVID and the pandemic, but it's important to point out that this, this atmosphere of lockdown and of pandemic uh, state of emergency uh, really affected and pushed off so many other uh, concerns uh, that were sort of ongoing while that yeah. was coming into play. Yeah. And I mean, like, yeah, the journalists, I mean, there was a massive, like a, a lot of journalists who laid off as a result of this whole thing. And at the same time, you've got to take into consideration the, uh, the, the internet and, and a lot of the crackdown there as well. I believe we, in our last conversation, we talked about the, uh, the integrity initiative that was brought down. So th these are, are all basically cons you know, projecting themselves very strongly in 2020. Um, so, so as we go forward now into 2021, what, what do you see as uh, some of the things, I mean, we've got the, the Biden presidency now with the profound uh, lack of uh, unity among the results. Uh, we've got uh, the uh, you know, global vaccination, Black Lives Matter, and so on. What are you going to be looking for going into 2021 that, that, that's going to stand out? Sure. So, so those issues that are going to carry through uh, into the new year, uh, you mentioned censorship, big tech, that, that played a direct role in the 2020 election, uh, where YouTube was basically announced that it's going to be pulling down any content that questions uh, the election results uh, in any of the states. And this is why there was ongoing court cases at the time. So that's quite a bold move by uh, big tech. And they also uh, basically blacked out a major story about uh, Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden. Uh, which the New York Post's own account got taken down. I mean, this is completely unprecedented that these corporations who have amassed an incredible amount of power and monopoly uh, can go and basically uh, bury a story uh, right in the heat of an election that is quite that might have you know major implications in terms of the candidate or in terms of national security in the case of uh, what they're investigating with Hunter Biden. So that's unprecedented. Uh, so this this kind of coming together, this convergence of mainstream media of Silicon Valley of a certain political faction. Uh, certainly this has basically thrown gasoline on a fire that was already burning uh, with regards to uh, a sort of populist rejection of uh, the deep state of politics, corrupt corporatized politics in Washington. And arguably that is the very force, if not the main force that really Donald Trump rode to uh, victory in in 2016, it was that rejection of establishment politics, of the corruption, of the duplicity, of the hypocrisy, and so forth. A lot of disenchanted Obama voters, uh, as he ran as an anti-war president and started so many wars during his eight-year tenure. And so Trump picked up a lot of the anti-war vote, some quite a bit of it in 2016. So fast forward to 2020, those issues are still there. Um, and so now going in to this, uh, if, the, if you know a Biden administration, uh, uh, when sworn in, uh, this is probably most likely going to be uh, quite hawkish on enforcing things like uh, mask mandates, uh, pushing vaccinations as this sort of tunnel of light at the end of the 
the dark pandemic, uh, as Joe Biden called it, the dark winter. Uh, and so again, the, the, the problem with this is it's relying on the state uh, to sort of come up with rounds of cash to basically subsidize everything that's affected by government policy. So it's a vicious cycle that will probably end up bankrupting uh, the treasury, bankrupting the state. I mean, the, 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 I saw an incredible statistic, two out of every $5 in circulation were printed in the last nine months. Okay. So, I mean, in terms of quantitative easing, uh, this is much more than anyone's ever seen, even uh, in the in the, the the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. I mean, we're really on the hook now for an endless, you know, endless rounds of stimulus, endless rounds of bailouts. Uh, there, we don't even talk about how much money the the governments are are buying bonds and stocks, you know, to basically artificially inflate, you know, the the, the stock markets, the bond markets, things like that. I mean, this is all of these things. Of course, could uh, could be tapered off if the economy's opened up if there is no longer a quote emergency. And so this is really a self perpetuating crisis. And uh, I really don't know where the end of it's going to be. I mean, so we're supposed to get used to this as the new normal uh, coming into the new year. We can expect uh, in the case of the UK, it's interesting. Uh, there, you know, there, there wasn't a really enthusiastic uptake for this uh, wonder vaccine that's uh, come out the mnRNA vaccine. And so uh, now they've instituted all of a sudden a lockdown in the UK. And really what they're, you know, what some critics are accusing the government of is creating a false demand for a vaccine if, you know, by increasing the pain <laughs> on the public, uh, by denying privileges and rights and life as quote normal, then that will somehow people will be begging for a way out. And if the government says that way out is, is for you know, everyone to get vaccinated uh, for COVID, then a lot of people will look at that as an option, uh, as an exit point. So that's a whole conundrum in itself, because obviously that's an abrogation of a lot of uh, rights and human rights, the right to choose, the right for your own body as well. Uh, so this becomes uh, you know, a major issue if you add travel uh, restrictions due to either testing or vaccinations, which a lot of the, some major airlines have already tabled, uh, that companies are working on, you know, uh, vaccine passport, immunity passports, and things like this as a standard, then what we're really looking at is interesting. It's, it's really, if you remember the kind of security regime that went into place post 9-11, a global security apparatus that was very corporatized. You have the policies, but behind the policies, you have a number of companies, transnational corporations that plug into that policy. And the war on terror really did that globally. There was global adoption, but you know, it couldn't have happened uh, unless it was led by really the five eyes countries, um, the US, Canada, uh, the United Kingdom, Australia, and New Zealand. The, these are the sort of global leaders for any sort of major trend in terms of regulation on that level. And so if you look at this now with biosecurity, who's leading, it's the United States, it's the United Kingdom, it's Canada, it's Australia, it's New Zealand. They're leading politically, and they're also leading on the application side and also on the pharmaceutical side. Uh, so the majority of these firms are you know, British and United States firms, based firms. So there's a couple of German firms involved as well and a few others. But you know, overall, this is really led, this is a really corporate-led effort. 
And then you have Abbott Labs. I mean, these companies' share prices have just gone through the roof in the last nine months. Uh, so, so I, I'm, I really, I'm looking at it like a post 9-11, but sort of times 100 okay. in terms of the scale. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, that's really fascinating. And it's certainly very uh, appropriate given the scale of this, uh, this whole scenario. Um, Patrick, I want to thank you. I've got a, other guests to talk to, but I, I want to thank you for, for taking the time for, uh, for this interview. I really appreciate it. Great to be with you, Mike. We've been speaking to Patrick Henningsen, founder and editor of 20th Century Wire. Another individual I invited was Dmitry Orlov, a Russian-American writer, blogger, and geopolitical analyst. He was in travel when I reached out, so I couldn't get him for an interview, but he did supply a copy of his recent article, which aligned with the subject at hand. I will read a segment of the article for you right now. Previously, whenever the capitalist imperialists found themselves at an impasse, they started world wars. World War I killed off lots of European peasantry, making room for post-war industrial expansion. World War II blew up all of that industry, giving Americans the opportunity to make money rebuilding it. In the 1970s, that industrial juggernaut started running out of gas, oil actually. But then barely 20 years later, the USSR up and died and vultures from the West flew out into feast on the remains. But now, 40 years later, China is the world's economic powerhouse, Russia is resurgent and militarily invincible, and it's time for another world war? Sure it is, but against whom? Attacking China would trigger an inordinately complex and drawn-out regional conflict that could not be sustained without Chinese-made spare parts. Attacking China would also give Russia ample opportunity to turn much of Eurasia into a Russian-held bastion. On the other hand, attacking Russia would just get you killed, and quickly. As Putin put it, in case of war, quote, we would go to heaven as holy martyrs while the enemy would simply die like dogs since they wouldn't even have time to repent, unquote. Putin also promised to counterattack the centers of decision-making. You order an attack on Russia and bang, you're dead, right in your bunker. If in 1941 Russia had the weapons it has today, Hitler would be dead on June 22nd of that year, minutes after the first Nazi bombs landed on Kiev. Let's be clear on this. The Americans know this, the Russians know this, and the Americans know that the Russians know this. In response to silly, harumphing noises by U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, Russia's Ministry of Foreign Affairs tweeted a painting of Napoleon retreating from Moscow with the derisive caption, Way to go, tough guys. If the impasse in which Western imperialist capitalism finds itself calls for war, but the current state of world war affairs precludes Western imperialists from starting the next world war, what is the solution? The answer is to start a war against your own people. Tell them that this is because of some virus, a flu virus of the coronavirus 
variety, somewhat lethal, but far more sparing than all of the previous severe flus since the Spanish one a century ago, and go at it, locking them up and destroying their lives and their businesses. Cast light the population into believing that healthy people can be sick and contagious. Force everyone into a digital concentration camp. Use your control of the media to label anyone who disagrees with this plan a conspiracy theorist. An ambitious plan of this sort needs a marketing plan to go with it. Thus, we have something they have called global reset. The term is a bit of mere puffery, but if they called it what it actually is, a local lockdown, nobody would buy the books. What the plan calls for is shrinking the global, sorry, local population, perhaps through forced vaccination, thus making plenty of room for the rich to stay rich while the poor become destitute or something like that. Brilliant and very rich people have been working on this plan for decades, and this is what they have come up with. Impressive, is it not? That was from writer and geopolitical analyst Dmitry Orlov. Read the entire article, How the World Has Changed Lately, on the site cluborlov.com. When we return, a conversation with Andy Lee Roth of Project Censored, sharing with us a list of the most censored stories of 2020. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Well, uh, a regular feature on the show this time of year. Uh, his name is Andy Lee Roth. He is the Zernip. He's the, the associate director of Project Censor. Uh, he coordinates the Project's campus affiliates program. That's the new news media research network of several hundred students and faculty, two dozen colleges and universities across North America. And they've put together this uh, little, uh, well, this is the regular top 25 uh, most censored stories in North America. Uh, Andy Lee Roth also earned a PhD in sociology at the University of California, Los Angeles, and a BA in sociology and anthropology at Haverford College. He also serves on the board of the uh, Media Freedom Foundation. So, uh, Andy Lee Roth, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show. Hey, Michael, it's great, great to be in conversation with you again. Thank you. Okay, so... Uh, yeah, this uh, this uh, there's been a, a major event that's been sort of keeping every, maybe had a, a a way of informing our whole uh, uh, the whole theme this year, and that's the the fact that there's been the COVID virus that's uh, basically affected everything. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and and news hasn't been immune to that. Uh, uh, I mean, obviously, news has covered it, but journalism has not been immune to the impacts of COVID, uh, the COVID nineteen pandemic. Um, as Mickey Huff, the director of the project, and I write in the introduction to uh, this year's Project Censored Yearbook, State of the Free Press twenty twenty one, the the COVID nineteen pandemic, I, I think, has acted like an X ray. Um, laying bare, exposing um, these compound fractures in, in uh, American society, um, uh, extraordinary economic inequality, 
um, and also uh, deep-seated uh, systemic racism. And so these are like compound fractures uh, that I think already existed in American society, but the COVID uh, pandemic has acted like an X-ray to force us to really um, uh, acknowledge and come to terms with these, these radical changes. Um, I should also add that under COVID, uh, we've seen crackdowns around the world on journalism um, that uh, internationally, uh, many nations have used, the governments of many nations have used the COVID pandemic and the threat of misinformation about COVID to crack down on journalists, especially journalists' use of freedom of information laws. Um, and in the United States, uh, under COVID and in the wake of the, of the police killing of George Floyd in uh, Minnesota, um, as, as protests erupted first in St. Paul uh, and Minneapolis and then spread across the country, um, uh, law enforcement uh, have been documented uh, multiple times, hundreds of times, according to um, U.S. Uh, press Freedom Watch trackers uh, statistics, um, hundreds, uh, close to 300 cases of attacks on journalists, many by law enforcement in 2020. So it's been um, a very tough year for press freedoms um, and State of the Free Press 2021, um, uh, you know, in addition to pro the project's annual listing of the most important but underreported news stories, um, We've also done our part to try to assess, uh, as the book title suggests, the state of the free press uh, in this most extraordinary year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it's, uh, it, it all came together anyway. Maybe you could have a, a look at some of those stories. Um, so I notice uh, maybe uh, number 24 there, uh, Silence in Savannah, journalist <laughs> Abby Martin challenges Georgia's BDS gag law. Uh, yeah, so that, that was the story in which she uh, refused to, to take the, the, the BDS oath, right? I mean, what, what's, what, give us a little bit more on the story. Yeah, so I mean, I think there are kind of two, to my, my, to my way of thinking about this story, there are two components to it. There's the specific circumstances of Abby Martin's case against the state of Georgia. Uh, and then there's how this, how that story acts as kind of uh, a, a buoy in the sea that's alerting us to a much larger set of subsurface activities that are getting hardly any news coverage at all. So first on the, the kind of at the surface level, um, the story of Abby Martin's case against the state of Georgia. Um, in February of this year, Abby uh, Martin was scheduled to give the keynote address at a critical media literacy conference that was in Savannah, Georgia. And um, to do so, she would have had to sign a, a contract with the state of Georgia based on a 2016 law that the Republican state legislature passed requiring anyone who enters a contract with the state for more than $1,000 worth of work has to sign an oath um, swearing that they would not boycott against Israel. Uh, and Abby Martin is, of course, um, to those who know her work, has been an outspoken advocate of the BDS movement, the movement for boycott, divestment, and sanctions, uh, which is basically a, an effort to peacefully pressure corporations, universities, and cultural organizations to stop doing business with Israel 
until it obeys international law and respects the human rights of Palestinians. So Abby Martin refused to sign the oath. Um, she obviously ended up then not being able to give the keynote a, a, a address at this critical media literacy conference in Savannah. Ultimately, most of the participants in the conference on hearing this news um, uh, refused to deliver their papers or participate in the conference out of solidarity with Abby Martin's position and the conference um, collapsed. That case uh, by Abby Martin against the state of Georgia is still uh, pending. Um, and this is where I would wanna pivot and say, um, uh, to talk about how that case is in some sense a buoy for much larger um, um, movements. Um, and I'll just, because I know we wanna cover a lot of ground here, I'll focus on one, one kind of, of these larger movements. Um, uh, in December of last year, so uh, 12 months ago, President Trump uh, uh, signed an order that basically defines Judaism as both a religion and a nationality under federal law. And the stated aim of Trump's order was to combat anti-Semitism on college campuses. Um, but what, it's actually, what this law has actually done is in connecting a Jewish religious identity on one hand with Israeli national identity on another, the new policy effectively means that any criticism of Israel's government and the government's actions can be construed as an attack on the Jews' Jewish faith and therefore be labeled anti-Semitic. Um, and this I think is the, is the Trump, order signed a year ago in some sense is just the codification of what has been um, the effort by many um, conservative figures and organizations in this country to try to conflate criticism of uh, the Israeli state uh, with anti-Semitism. And that's a story that has gone largely underreported in the corporate press, um, but has been drawn attention to by outlets like uh, uh, covering covering uh, Abby Martin's case against Georgia, Telesur, English, Mint Press News, and Counterpunch, to name just a few of the independent news organizations that have been on this important but underreported stories beat. Fascinating. Uh, I noticed uh, number 21, the scourge of human trafficking in Yemen. That was, uh, that, that's uh, a conflict that's been ongoing now for five years. Uh, five and, and a half more. Uh, could, could you comment on on what uh, you know? Who who put that out and uh, what mm -hmm. what it's really all about? This is, uh, I think, just crucial reporting by Ahmed Abdul uh, Karim for uh, Mint Press News. He talks about how there's in the in the basically complete absence of law and order in Yemen. Um, a black market of black tr uh, of, of human trafficking has has developed. Um, Yemeni people are literally sacrificing their bodies to provide for their families, selling organs. Um, between 2015 and 2017, um, the Yemen Organization for Combating Human Trafficking uh, documented more than 10,000 cases of organ sales. Um, in addition to organ sales uh, that are uh, illegal and, and in many cases uh, uh, raise serious ethical concerns based on people's religious commitments, um, human, the trafficking also involves sexual exploitation, um, 
in his report, Abdul Karim um, uh, spoke with a number of female trafficking victims who had been forced into prostitution networks in Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. Um, many of them, although they were now freed from those exploitative relations, were afraid to return home because they feared for their lives um, that there would, they would be um, killed by their family as, as so-called honored killings. It's important, I think, in this story to note the, the background for this. This isn't a case of Yemen being inherently a lawless nation where um, this kind of exploitation is commonplace or normal. Um, as you mentioned, Michael, um, it's, uh, we're going on five years now uh, since the US-backed coalition of Arab countries, including Saudi Arabia, uh, launched war uh, in Yemen and um, it's really against that backdrop that this story makes sense. Um, human trafficking has flourished since 2015. Um, so, for instance, although Yemen has laws that prohibit trafficking and those who are found guilty would be sentenced to 10 years in prison, um, those laws are going unenforced now, in part because many of government officials who are charged with um, maintaining those those uh, those laws are, appear to be directly involved themselves in the trafficking and illegal organ sales. So this is, a, this is not one of the um, good news stories in this year's top 25 list. But uh, as I often remind people um, when we report stories, when Project Censored highlights stories that are um, grim in all their aspects, um, we'd be far worse off if we didn't know anything about what was going on in Yemen in terms of human trafficking. And it's only because of independent news reporting like um, Ahmed Abdul Karim's report for Mint Press News that we know about this. The corporate news media have essentially ignored, although Yemen is often in the news in the corporate news media, this aspect, the organ sales and the human trafficking were, as we, as Project Censored re researched this story, were completely off the radar of the corporate news media. Yeah, I, I hear you. And I mean, Yemen is hardly ever mentioned uh, anyway. I mean, I'm surprised that most people aren't aware what, what's still going on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, but yeah, let's, yeah let's, let's move on because we're uh, running a little low on time. Uh, number 14, uh, you, you talked about uh, good news stories always include a good news story in the batch. Uh, the, the case for a public pharmaceutical system. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I'll start uh, uh, talking about this story, which is indeed a good news story, a, a, so, a story about solutions. I'll start by noting that as we research this story, the key report that this story is uh, built on, a September 2019 report by the Democracy Collaborative, uh, was, as far as we could tell, completely unacknowledged in the corporate media. So what was this report about? Um, it provided a model for, democratic, uh, for a democratic public pharmaceutical system, um, as Fran Quigley reported for Common Dreams. Um, the current uh, uh, pharmaceutical system is basically an extractive model um, that um, contributes to and reproduces inequality um, it increasingly produces drug shortages and inefficiencies as anyone who uh, has been thoroughly, um, uh, you know, uh, integrated into that system knows. Um, so what the democracy collaboration uh, collaborative was uh, proposing is a model based on public ownership 
for, of, of not only pharmaceutical development, but also production and distribution. It would be a systemic fix to the kind of problems, the biggest flaws that, that we have with big pharma today. Um, I think, you know, a lot of people hear stories like this and they go, oh, well, that's all fine and good as a model, as a plan. Um, but one of the things that Fran Quigley noted in, in uh, the Common Dreams report is that the foundation for these changes, the model proposed by the Democracy Collaborative are already in place. Um, public funding is already a bedrock of most pharmaceutical research and development in the country. This was documented in a March 2018 um, study published in PNAS um, that found that from 2010 to 2016, every single one of 210 newly approved drugs traced their origins back to tax taxpayer-sponsored research, that is public-funded research. So the model proposed by the Democracy Collaborative um, is one that is uh, very much a realistic uh, possibility based on the existing system. Um, it's also something where um, we have, we have um, examples of versions of this in operation in other countries around the world from Sweden and Brazil to Thailand, China, and Cuba. All these countries embrace public ownership of key aspects of their pharmaceutical and medicine systems um, in ways that the U.S. could benefit from learning and following. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's great. Um, I'm going to yeah, move on a little bit because uh, we're running on time. But, but uh, number three, U.S. military, a massive hidden contributor to climate crisis. Uh, it seems like we have people talking about the climate crisis all the time, but rarely do they mix it in with the military. So expand on that a little bit. Yeah, and this is, a, this is actually a story that the Project Censored has been tracking for almost 10 years now in some ways. Um, the latest version of this story or the latest development in this story is a study that was conducted by Benjamin Nymark, Oliver Belcher, and Patrick Bigger, who reported on it in the kind of the popular press in a 2019 article in The Conversation. Um, they've conducted a study looking at basically the supply chains for the U.S. military around the world and found that in terms of emissions, um, the US military in uh, 2017 emitted more than 25,000 kilotons of carbon dioxide. Now that's a kind of abstract number. The way that they framed that is that if the US military were a country, were a nation, its fuel usage and its carbon emissions would make it the 47th largest emitter of greenhouse gases in the world. It, the U.S. military emits more greenhouse gases than the countries of Portugal or Sweden. Now, uh, you know, there's more detail about this story and all of the stories in the top 25 on Project Censored's website, projectcensored.org. And in the short time we have here uh, uh, to talk a, a more about this story, I want to emphasize how uh, Neymark, Belcher, and Bigger got this information. Um, because this is an important, uh, I think, aspect of, of, of free press and of independent journalism and of the ability of journalists to investigate stories um, that involve powerful institutions like the Department of Defense. Um, for a long time, um, the Kyoto Protocol 
uh, which is the kind of international agreement on emissions, exempted the US military from reporting anything about its uh, fuel usages and emissions. Um, the Paris Accord closed that loophole in the Kyoto Accord, but Trump, of course, uh, President Trump uh, withdrew the United States from um, the Paris Accord. So um, the researchers of this story got their data through freedom of information requests through a, a sub-agency of the Department of Defense called the U.S. Defense uh, Logistics uh, Agency, the DLAE, which is the manages all of the supply chains. So basically, they came up with a novel way of, of indexing the extent to which the U.S. military is uh, a gross polluter and, uh, as we call them, a hidden contributor to the climate crisis. So this is a story, I think, not only of... Uh, uh, you know, an out of control uh, uh, U.S. empire and its military arms leading to disastrous um, climate consequences for everyone in the world, but also a story of kind of the, the power and the tools, uh, the power of investigative journalism when journalists have the tools necessary, such as the Freedom of Information Act, to pursue these stories um, to, their, to their ends. Okay. Uh, I've got just a, a couple of minutes left, but I want to run through the, uh, the uh, in addition, there's uh, the state of the free press that you, uh, 2021, which is your, your annual, the title of your annual book. Um, you, you got a, a number of interesting articles in there, uh, right, right in the introduction, the pandemic and the free press, where you, you comment on uh, the impact of the pandemic on the free press itself, uh, where, where people are, are being, you know, it, it's being essentially ravaged in a way. Uh, you just maybe talk briefly about what's happening there. I think there are two components to that. Uh, one is an economic component. The pandemic has been disastrous for uh, uh, journalism, uh, which was as, as, a, as a profession, as a business enterprise, was already in economic trouble. Um, the number of journalists that have been laid off, furloughed, or had their pay reduced under the coronavirus uh, is, is, uh, is counted in the hundred, not in the hundred, I'm sorry, is a, was estimated by the New York Times in May of this year to be approximately 36,000. So that was ha almost half a year ago. And that number probably has grown uh, since then. Um, even, um, you know, kind of August independent news outlets like the Atlantic have been impacted in May of this year, the Atlantic laid off 17% of its staff. So on one hand, we have economic, um, uh, uh, hardships that are damaging journalism, making all the more relevant public funding for journalism, which is another of our top stories in this year's book. The other component I mentioned briefly already in international context, but um, journalists um, around the world um, uh, and in the United States uh, have been under increasing uh, uh, pressure uh, from governments uh, to you know, either being attacked or arrested as has happened to journalists in the US. Um, and there is significant video evidence to show that journalists covering um, Black Lives Matter protests have been attacked as journalists when they clearly are showing press badges and holding what is obviously professional um, um, uh, gear to record those events. Um, 
So I think both of these things are, are trends that were in place before the pandemic, um, but the pandemic has accelerated and amplified these trends, the economic hardships and the uh, potential for states to throttle the free press um, are both things that are uh, always a concern but have become even more pointedly so uh, under the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, you have got other, um, other interesting stories. Uh, there's uh, Robin Anderson's written establishment media's war metaphors, obscure injustices and, and black uh, global healing, um, media democracy in action, uh, the whistleblowers newsroom shows for, by and about whistleblowers. And then there's uh, the, the junk food news 2019 to 2020, uh, capitalism, celebrity and consumer and consuming corona um i don't know we only got it maybe time for one more question but uh, maybe talk a little bit about uh you know what, what special you know a little bit more about how these uh, issues came together it seems like corona is one of them that's uh, uh motivating a lot of it but, uh. absolutely absolutely um i mean i think the other thing in that is um is uh new again in this year's volume, if you will, is uh, we reintroduced uh, a longstanding feature of previous yearbooks that's been absent for a few years called Deja Vu News. And we, in that chapter of the book, we go back and look at what happened to top 25 stories from previous yearbooks. Mm -hmm. And this year, Steve Masick uh, at North Central College and a student um, uh, intern working with Steve, Zach McNana, have done a great job on tracking um, some of the previous yearbook's uh, top stories to see what's happened to those stories since then. And I think that's a, a really important feature analytically um, to make sense of how corporate media works, how it filters, and sometimes how these stories seep through and make their way into the corporate press. But, but getting coverage that we might still consider to be partial in the sense of incomplete and also partial in the sense of biased. So the Deja Vu News chapter this year actually includes uh, an update related to um, the story we were just talking about, the US military um, we have an update on the 2011 story about the United States Department of Defense being the worst polluter on the planet in the, in the deja vu chapter that uh, Steve Masick and Zach McNana uh, researched for this year's book. Well, it's been a lot of uh, interesting uh, articles in this edition. And so, um, yeah, I hope you'll we'll, we'll do, we'll do well and better in the upcoming years. Um, but uh, I want to thank you again for uh, sharing with us and uh, we look forward to more from you. Thanks so much, Michael. Uh, it's it's um, really wonderful of, of you and Global Research Radio to uh, give a spotlight to the project's work and the stories that we hope more people will uh, get hold of and become active around. That's really the point of it all is to be informed and to get engaged. We've been speaking with Andy Lee Roth, the Associate Director of Project Censors, Censors and uh, his, its recent book, uh, State of the Free Press 2021. We're down to the end of another program and another chapter of the Global Research News Hour. 
Before we go, however, I wanted to comment briefly on the events that took place on Wednesday, January 6th. Protesters devoted to Donald Trump arrived, spurred in by urges by the president himself that the election was rigged. They descended on Capitol Hill and managed to overwhelm the presence of security forces in charge. There was really nothing different about the protesters turned mobsters other than the large number of them. They broke into the Senate chamber and the Capitol Capitol building. To observers, this was really nothing short of sedition. Senators actually were placed in hiding during their normal goings-on while the disruptors made their way into the chamber. At least one of the guides threw a folder on the personal desk of Nancy Pelosi with the message, We will not back down. As events unfolded, Donald Trump stuck to his line about how his presidency was stolen, but he ultimately did encourage his followers to disperse. The disruptive group did eventually leave, and senators, under the guidance of Vice President Mike Pence, got on with the business of ensuring Joe Biden would indeed become the next president of the United States. It was certainly a riveting scene to watch. In my mind, however, there are concerns about why it happened. How could U.S. state forces, prepared as far back as the days of the civil rights movement, the anti-Vietnam War movement, the climate movement, where they've come to expect large numbers of people, how in tarnation did these people manage to enter into the one building where measures would be as airtight as anywhere? How could they just drop the ball? There was plenty of time to anticipate high numbers of people. Why didn't state forces anticipate this? My thinking is that this was a fixed deal, meaning that security actually were given orders not to deal with them. So my thinking is they couldn't have gotten uh, this unless they let it happen. Motive, not only the final nail in the coffin of President Donald Trump, who got caught in the trap of his own eagle, but now new measures can be adopted and embraced to make sure that this act of insurrection never again plagues America. Every senator cowering under his desk a few hours ago, Democrat and Republican, would agree to it. And here's the thing. It isn't just Trump hooligans who would have to adapt to the new guidelines. Democrat voters and left-wingers, and anyone regardless of their beliefs would face the same conditions. This is a world of war, only this time it isn't just a war on communists or terrorists or China or Iran. This is a war on you. Welcome to 2021. That's our show for this week. Next week we'll be examining the COVID virus and the lockdowns, and the changes to how we will adapt on the geopolitical stage. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaking, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for listening.